Father, as we come to worship you this morning, it's amazing to think that we can worship the God of all creation, that you have given us the opportunity to open your revealed word and to not only see you on display, but also see your plan of redemption being fulfilled and worked out. How, Father, you are drawing yourself a people to praise your Son forever and ever. It's an opportunity that we have to have the Holy Spirit moved within us, not only to bring those who do not know you to faith, but also others to help our faith get strengthened so that with each one of us, Father, that we could stand amazed and how, can, how you use such a simple vessel as us to affect all of eternity. So, Father, speak to us. Give us ears to hear. Give us sight to see, so that through everything, your name will get the glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your Bible, please open up to Genesis chapter 43. And as you turn to those pages, I just wanted to make a comment of, it's been great over these last few months to see major events happen within the church. We've not only had weddings, which are a picture that we can rejoice of not only a couple getting together, but also it reflects a picture of Christ and his church. But even though I love weddings, I love baptisms all the more. And so over the last year or so, there's been a number of baptisms. And they're an exciting time for me because we get to hear stories of how God has worked in a person's life to bring them to faith. How prior to them coming faith, they didn't really know all the time that they were lost, but how the Holy Spirit was working in their life to convict them of their, of their sin and to see how lost that they are and to see how holy God is and how their sin deserves judgment for an eternity. But yet there is hope. There is deliverance that God sent his son to die on the cross for our sins. And so that's an exciting time for us to hear those stories because sometimes we lose track of that. And to hear um, a person who comes to faith and how God has worked to transform his life and how people around them can state that change, it, it's an exciting time of great transformation. And there's nothing more thrilling to have that. And so God has given us the opportunity to share our faith. But that aspect of transformation is what we're going to be looking at this morning in Genesis chapter 43 and 44. Yes, we are going to be looking at two chapters this morning. Two chapters, 72 verses, but yet one great transformation. And so God is going to be working in the lives of his people. And as we've seen so far, as we look at the life, uh, the life of Joseph and something to where I needed to hear and be reminded of God's providential working in Joseph's life because through all the ups and downs that a person can go through, we, we can sort of forget that aspect of God is taking whether or not they're the large details or the small details to bring his name glory, to shape us for uh, certain events that only God may, may know. And so as we've been sort of inching our way through the book of Genesis towards that, that last half, we've been looking at the life of Joseph as he begins to come face to face 
with those who turned their back upon him, the ones who um, led him into slavery, and yet they're his brothers. They're his flesh and blood. And so we were, and we left Joseph at, his family going back home. It's a very dark time. Their family is in complete disarray. Jacob is not walking with God as he should. Joseph is outside of the covenant community. All of his brothers are total scoundrels, and Joseph is the only one who is manifesting any kind of godly characteristics. There is no unity. Their family is full of bitterness, division, and even the patriarch of the family, Jacob, his heart seems to be very far away from the Lord. And to top things off, they do not know where the promised seed will go through for the Messianic line for God to fulfill the promises that he made with their great-grandfather, Abraham. And so we've been going through this one chapter and coming out of chapter 42, in which I am very indebted to Vodi Bakum in his book on Joseph, we've seen that as Joseph sees his brothers, he needs to test them. And we've looked at last time those seven tests because he needs to have an understanding of where they are at. And we said last time there were three reasons why he brings about this test. Because he needs to discern where, he, where his brothers are. It's been over 20 years in which he's seen his brothers last time, and he needs to know where they're at. Are they the same scoundrels that they were before, or has God gotten in touch with them? Secondly, he needs to know who's the spokesperson for the brothers. Is there one that is the natural leader for, for the group? And then thirdly, where are they spiritually? Are they working with God? Has God gotten a hold of them and changed their lives? Because even in the, Joseph's dark situation, he grew in faith with the Lord because the Lord was with him. And so though his family knew that God has touched their lives through Abraham, through their um, grandfather Isaac, and through their father Jacob, and has given them a set of promises, it doesn't necessarily mean that uh, the children's walk, that Joseph's brothers are walking as closely as with God as their forefathers. And so none of them reflect any kind of godliness. And so Joseph is going to be testing them. To Joseph's brothers, Joseph looks just like a high-ranking official who's almost equal to Pharaoh. And so he's wearing Egyptian clothes. He's speaking to them in Egyptian. He speaks through an, inter uh, an interpreter. And nothing about Joseph's actions or demeanor made it look like that he was Hebrew. And so everything about Joseph was foreign to his brothers. And so we looked at those seven tests last time. The first test Joseph needed to know, was Benjamin alive? And so there were 10 brothers that were there, and there was one missing. And he needs to determine that if Benjamin, who would be naturally um, the father's next favorite child, coming from the favorite wife, would he um, go through the same kind of torment that he went through, one of kidnapping or maybe one of murder, and he wasn't there, and he needs to know. 
We saw the second test, will someone volunteer to go? If Joseph um, keeps the entire family and orders one to go back to, um, to Canaan and to bring back Benjamin, would one volunteer? No one volunteers to go. Well, then um, will someone volunteer to stay? Will someone volunteer to stay while the others go back and bring back Benjamin? No one volunteers to stay. Will someone return for Simeon? So he takes Simeon, the secondborn, and keeps him and um, tells him that they will not receive any kind of food until they bring back Benjamin. Will someone return? Nobody returns until the food runs out. Will they return the money is test number five. Joseph puts the money in which the grain was back into their sacks. Will they return the money when they realize that they would have, the Egyptians would have viewed them stealing the money and not paying for it when they go back to, to Canaan? And in two opportunities, they don't return the money. Test number six, have they earned Jacob's trust? Have they earned the father's trust to be able to give Benjamin, his now new favorite child, to be able to let him go back with them to Egypt? No, they have not earned Jacob's trust. He does not trust them. A matter of fact, in verse 36 of chapter 42, he even blames the brothers for Joseph's death in now the situation in which they find themselves because they didn't take care of Joseph and they didn't take care of Simeon. And so he blames them for their situation. And then test number seven we saw, have they earned Benjamin's trust? Does Benjamin trust his brothers to say, Father, let me go. We need to get Simeon out of prison and, and then return. But he never speaks up. And so those seven tests Joseph gives to see if God has worked or worked in their life. Has there been any kind of transformation from, their, from them saying that they are people of God? And they failed those tests. Those seven tests covers four areas of sin. It covers that does the sins of their past continue to characterize their present? And at the end of the test, they're the same scoundrels as they were before. Not one of them has changed. Do they love the brethren? Are they willing to sacrifice themselves despite their situation? No, they don't. They don't volunteer to stay. They don't volunteer to go. They don't go back. They, no, their household is filled with division and animosity. They don't love the brethren. When they find um, the silver back, back home, shows forth that how do they act when they are faced with a moral dilemma? Do they act rightly? Do they act godly? No, they, they don't return the money. They hang on to it until the food runs out, as we shall see. And do the, those closest to them see a change? Do they, does the father, Jacob... And Benjamin see a, train, a change in them, so they trust them. And they don't. They're, they don't trust them at all. And so that's why in verse um, 36, we find that 
Jacob says that you have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simon, Simeon is no more, and you would take Benjamin. All these things are against me. Jacob knows that when he sees the money, that they would have realized that they have stolen it. They did not paid for the items, that, the grain that they had. And so Jacob cries out, Joseph is dead, Simeon is dead, and there's nothing left but my one son. And so Benjamin, I mean, Jacob is one in still mourning, mourning over the loss of his favorite wife, mourning over the loss of his favorite son. And Benjamin, who is the second child of the favorite wife, is the new favored one. And with him not sending Benjamin, knowing that Simeon is in jail, he doesn't even want to take the chance over the possibility of of losing Benjamin. So in one sense, he is saying, let Simeon rot. I am not going to take that chance. And so chapter 42 ends in a very dark time for the family. Complete disarray. There is no family unity at all. There's no visible sign of godliness, even from Jacob. But yet behind the scenes, the hound of heaven is working. Behind the scenes, the Holy Spirit is there convicting each one of them of their sin, that they are not walking right with God. In verse uh, 21 of Genesis chapter uh, 42, they sense they're guilty that when they see these things going bad, they say, we are, we are guilty according, um, concerning our brother because we saw the distress of his soul when he pleaded with us. So they sense as they were carrying out their malicious deed that they are guilty. And then in verse 28 of chapter 42, they cry out, That God is bringing this about because of what we have done. What is this that God has done to us? They realize that they are guilty and they know it. The hound of heaven is making their conscience scream that things are wrong in their life. And so Jacob and his family are God's covenant people. But yet they are far from the way that they, that, that they should be walking with God. And so this morning we're going to be looking at those, those um, two chapters, chapter 43 and chapter 44. So hang on tight, 72 verses. But when we conclude, there's one great transformation. Because we are going to see in the life of one of Joseph's brothers how he rises to the occasion. Not because he's earned it, but because of what God has done to him in his life. And so look at chapter, um, the first 15 verses. We won't be reading all these verses, so don't worry. I'm going to try to pull the highlights from them. But we're going to see J- um, 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 Jacob's sons return, well, Jacob's return to faith in the first 15 verses. And so look at verse 1. Now the famine was severe in the land. So it came about that when they finished eating the grain that they had brought from Egypt, that their father said to them, go back, buy us a little food. And so we are reminded how severe the famine is. It's probably year two out of the seven years worth of famine. 
And so they're running out of food, and J- Jacob says, we, we need to get some food. Not that he doesn't realize what, what, what had taken place, but he's just stating fact that we need to buy food. And so we don't know how much time has, has gone by since they've returned, but it's probably somewhere between six months and a year. Because if you knew that there was a famine going on and you had to feed your family, you wouldn't be eating mightily every single night and decide to go back down to the grocery store, but you'd be basically piecemealing every single meal every single day. And so you weren't necessarily always full, but you had enough to get by until the grain runs out. And so the threat of starvation was once again looming heavily on each one of their families. And so through the small portions that they would have to eat to get by, got them by, but now the food was was just about gone and they needed to do some kind of action. And so Judah then steps in to remind his father that, that that request was not that easy to do. Essentially, it's going to be impossible that he says that Benjamin, unless Benjamin goes on that trip. And so throughout chapter 2, when Joseph's brothers seen Joseph, he appeared to be a man who intimidated. There was nothing winsome about him. I call him the intimidator because he just put them in his place, kept them in his place, and they were fearful, fearful of him. And so he called them spies continually, and then they would get no more food unless Benjamin were to be with them. And so look at verse 3. And Joseph spoke to him, however, saying. And so this in verse 3 is a key aspect. We begin to see Judah beginning to step forward in small steps to become leader of the family. He's an unexpected leader as he emerges. And so there's a textual indicator that is going on here that will take place for the rest of the book because Judah is going to be the primary speaker, really none of his brothers, which is going to indicate that there's a change that is happening within the family dynamics. Because if you sort of go back to chapter 37, they either, um, it is recorded that they've sort of all said things, so no one speaker, uh, no one brother sort of had prominence, or it was one of the first two. Either Reuben said something, and even Simeon said something. And it wasn't, it, it didn't mean that Dan or Asher really didn't have anything to say. No, um, Moses wants to give us enough information that as he begins to tell the story, that the important people in the story, they'll have something to say, something to add, but when it changes, it's going to be significant. And so when you begin to look at the firstborn, Reuben, he was rotten to, to the core, so much so that his father not only did not trust him, but his life was just so out, um, out of hand to where he got out of favor with his father. So much, uh, so, much so that he um, committed immorality with his stepmother. And so he fell out of good graces and he tried to get back into good graces with his, uh, with his father, but to no avail. 
even when Joseph was, um, was in the pit, he says, well, let's not kill Joseph. Because in the back of his mind, he wanted to rescue Joseph and bring him to his father and become, um, they had the firstborn privilege back to them. And so Reuben couldn't be the leader of the family. He was out of favor. How about, how about the secondborn and thirdborn, Simeon and Levi? Well, with Simeon and Levi, they couldn't be the, the family spokesperson because they were mass murderers. They weren't just murderers, they were mass murderers when their sister was raped by Shechem. And then uh, he wanted to marry the sister. He said the only way that, that you can marry into our family, you and your brothers, was that if you were to get circumcised. So after they were circumcised, they went in, and, and the men could not defend themselves, and they killed all the men in the town in which they were at. They were mass murderers. And Judah, the fourth son, what about Judah? Well, there was nothing redeeming about him at all because we have Genesis chapter 38. Genesis chapter 38 doesn't really sort of fit to a lot of people in the Joseph story because you have Joseph, you got the pit, and then you got him being sold to Egypt, and all of a sudden you have Judah's situation and his immorality with Tamar, and then you have the continuation And so why is Genesis chapter 38 there? Well, we get to see um, Judah's life and what changes God is going to be taking place later on. But you're going to have to wait till chapter 48 to find out Judah's preeminence. And so in, in chapter 38, we get to see that there was nothing worthy for Judah to add to his resume that he was worthy to be the spokesperson. And matter of fact, when you begin to look back at chapter 38, he was part of the covenant community, but at the beginning of the chapter, he left them. He's out of there. I'm on my own. So he, so he goes to other parts of Canaan, marries a Canaanite woman, which Abraham um, had f- forbidden, commits immorality with Tamar into where she, born, um, she bears twin boys. And so when you look at Judah... In his accomplishments, in his character, there was nothing with, um, that he had accomplished to make him head of the family unless God had done a work in his heart. And so that's what we're going to see. And so, um, and so look at verse 7. And they said, as, um, as uh, Judah begins to... Uh, to speak up, the man questioned particularly about us and our relatives. So, uh, so they're there, they're telling um, Joseph the story, and the intimidator questioned particularly us and our relatives, saying, is your father still alive? Have you another brother? And so we answered his question. Could we possibly know that he would say, bring your brother down? And so Jacob is there and said, why are you telling this guy all of our life story? Now he's requiring Benjamin to go. And so he, he just asked and we just said, look at verse 8. And Judah said to his father, Israel. So not only do we have now um, Judah who's going to be speaking for all of the brothers, but also we have another change 
in the context. We have, he speaks to his father, Israel. That's an important indicator that there is a change that is going on. Because Moses uses Jacob's covenant name, Israel, to describe Jacob here. His name is going to be used three times within this chapter. And I believe there are two reasons why we have the name change within the text. First of all, Moses wants us to realize that God has been working a major work in the life of Jacob's heart. Because back in Genesis chapter 32, Jacob wrestles with God. And that's the first time where he's told by God that he's going to have a name change. A change from supplanter to God prevails, which is Israel. But then in chapter 37, we find that when Joseph is, uh, is reported to him as being dead, that he refuses to be comforted by all. And then 20 years goes by to where it seems like he wallows in his sorrow. Jacob is not, work, not walking properly with the Lord. And so that, that may begin to raise the question, well, where, when did Jacob actually get saved? I believe it was probably during that name change. But yet, we'll talk more about that in, in, in a moment. But there's a second reason for the name change. Because what is about to take place is related to the covenantal promises that he gave to Abraham, that God gave to Isaac, and that God has told him in Genesis chapter 32. If you have your Bible, go to, um, go to Genesis chapter 35 where we have that second name change. The second name change is sort of very important where God will reestablish with Jacob and speak to him directly about the land promise and the seed promise and the promised blessing. And he is reminded of that name change that has taken place. So I believe that that Jacob got saved sometime early on, but his walk with God wasn't correct. And so look at, look at verse 9 of chapter 35. That God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Paderarim, and he blessed him. And God said to him, your name is Jacob. You shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. Thus he called him Israel. God also said to him, I am God Almighty, or I am El Jadai. Hold on to that, um, that name. Be fruitful and multiply. A name and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come forth from you, and the land which I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you, and I will give the land to your seed after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him, and Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone, and he poured out a drink offering on it. And probably there was a sacrifice too, because usually when you had a drink offering, there was a, um, a meal offering, and he poured oil on it. So Jacob named the place where God had spoken with him Bethel, or house of God. And so God speaks to Jacob, reminds him of his covenantal name, reminds him that he is the God of Almighty, reestablishes the promises that he gave to his great-grandfather, 
and, well, to his, his grandfather and to his father. And so now we have his covenant name being used here. And so Judah is speaking to him. And so back to chapter 43, Judah is going to emerge as the head of the family as he speaks to Israel regarding covenantal redemptive aspects. And so this, com- this conversation is going to be foundational to bring about unity, family, redemption to the family, to where the family will, will turn from a large group and later into a nation. So look at verse 8. And Judah said to his father Israel, Send the lad with me, and we will arise and go that we may live and not die. Just as a footnote, that live and not die is found throughout the book of Genesis, beginning with, um, with, uh, um, with, with the fall, and then it's found throughout. But that's for free. And as well as you and your little ones. And I myself will be surety for him. You may hold me responsible for him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, and then let me bear the blame before you forever. For if we had not delayed, surely by now we could have returned twice. The key here is found in verse 9. That word surety. I am going to be a guarantee, if you would. I will, um, a surety is a person who assumes all legal responsibilities for someone else's debt. And so he is saying that I will take all responsibility myself. I will pledge myself if I do not bring Benjamin back. That's a great statement. Reuben sort of made a similar statement, if you remember, to where his father just threw it out and ignored it. Reuben said, let me go back at the end of chapter 42, and I will go get Benjamin. And if I don't bring him back, you can kill two of my sons. Well, here, it's not just Reuben passing the buck on to someone else. Judah is saying, it's me. I will take responsibility. I will be the pledge. And I will make sure that if I don't bring Benjamin back, you can take my own life. And so God is working in Jacob's heart to see the large picture, to take his eyes off of what is temporal and going around him to see a larger picture. Because Jacob knows that somehow the promised seed is going to come through one of his sons. And so somehow they have to survive because they don't know which one. And so Jacob's faith turns to God beginning at verse 11. Look at verse 11. And then their father Israel said to them, If it be so, then do this. Take some of the best products of the land in your bags and carry down to the intimidator, I mean the man, as a present. A little balm, a little honey, aromatic gum and myrrh, pistachio nuts and almonds. Verse 12, take double the money in your hand and take back the money, your, your hand, the money that was returned in the mouth of your sack. Perhaps it was a mistake. So I want you to bring double the money and pay double the money for what grain you're, you're going to get and also take back the money that they should have gotten before so they can view that things were a mistake. Verse 13, take your brother also 
Arise, return to the, to the man. And then in verse 14 is the key. Jacob says to them as if as in a prayer, May God Almighty grant you compassion in the sight of the man. May El Jedi grant you compassion in the sight of the man, resulting in or so that he will release to you your brother Benjamin and ask for me if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. Jacob, Jacob goes, there ain't no way, no how, Benjamin is going to where within a short time later, it's all in God's hands. Somehow, he, he is now trusting in God. He is off of himself, um, of him trying to be in control of his favorite child and his destiny to whatever God is going to do, it will be done. Maybe he's thinking back to, um, to when his, his, um, his grandfather, Abraham, was going to sacrifice um, his father, Isaac, and he told Isaac, God's going to provide a sacrifice. Don't you worry. God's, God's going to provide through it all. And maybe he realized that God is in it all. And so I believe Jacob's faith is back on where it is supposed to be. If I get breathed from what takes place, then let it be so I am bereaved. Because God is a God almighty. And may he grant you compassion in this situation. And so it's, it's amazing to see how, how Jacob's life can go from one place to another place. To be where he's trying to maintain control and all his life is just falling apart. To one to where he's completely believing and trusting in God. So you may say, well, how does, you know, how does one get saved in the Old Testament? You know, maybe, maybe this is where he actually got saved. Well, the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 4 gives us how Abraham got saved. Basically, he, um, in, in Romans chapter 4, he quotes Genesis chapter 15, where it says that Abraham believed God and was credited to him as righteousness. God spoke, Abraham believed and God granted him faith because he put his complete faith and trust in that. So somewhere along the line, the same thing happened with Jacob. Because salvation comes through faith alone. It's not like his sons uh, just thinking that they were part of the promised people, that God would just use them along. Because they thought that they were saved, but in reality, there was no godly characteristics at all until God does the work within his heart. And so Jacob's eyes are now back on where they're supposed to be. The text is telling us that he is, um, that he is Israel here. And so they looked forward to the promised seed coming. And then after the cross, we look back on the promised seed who came. But both ways are ones that faith was the same. It was believing God, and it is reckoned to them as righteousness. And so we have the name change here. And so he tells his son, especially towards Judah, you pledged yourself, go, take him, and let God work out those details. 
So in verse 15, so the men took this present, and they took double the money in their hand, and Benjamin, uh, and they arose and went down to Egypt, and they stood before Joseph. And so in verses 16 and following, we get to see the brothers return to Egypt. They are now before the man I call the intimidator. And they're uh, they're expecting to be intimidated by him. And so in verse 16, when Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to his house steward, bring the men into the house, slay an animal, and make ready, for the men are to dine with me at noon. So normally probably what is taking place is, is that there's a long line of people they're coming to, to get the grain. He's in charge to dispense the grain. And he, he sees that his brothers are there, and he sees Benjamin, and he says, it's time for lunch. I want them to join me. Now, to, uh, um, to Joseph's brothers, they're not comfortable with this. Look at verse 18. Now, the men were afraid. Why are they afraid? Because they know that he is the intimidator. They are expecting to give him this big story of somehow we didn't pay last time. Somehow the money is here. We got the money. We got some extra money. They were explained to lay it all out. They were accused of being spies before. They didn't even say that Benjamin was there. All he's saying is, I want them for lunch. So they knew that he probably had an agenda that was going on besides lunch. And so... They felt that they were about to get prosecuted for their past crime. Verse 19, so they came near to Joseph's house. Well, they came near to Joseph's house steward, and they spoke to him at the entrance of the house. And so they're about to enter the house, and and they tell Joseph's house steward, Oh, my Lord, we indeed came down the first time to buy food. And it came about that when we came to the lodging place and opened our sacks, behold, each man's money was in the mouth of his sack, our money in full. So we have brought it back. We're returning the money. Sounds familiar. And we have also brought down the other money in our hand to buy food. And we do do not know who put our money in our sacks. And look at the response the steward gives them. Be at ease. Don't be afraid. And he uses the gods of Israel's name in the explanation. Your God and the God of your father has given you treasure in your sacks. I had your money, and then he brought Simeon out to them. And so he is saying, don't worry. We got your money before. I don't know where that money came from. Your God provided you With that money. Very out of place. Why? Because it's another element that is taking place within the lives of the brother to awaken their hearts to the sin in which which they had been doing. And so verse 24, then the man brought the men into Joseph's house and he treats them like they are high-ranking government officials. Gave them water washed their feet, gave their donkeys food. That's what fodder means. Gave their donkeys food to eat because it was a long trip. And so they prepared the present for Joseph's coming at noon when they had heard 
that they were to eat their meal there. And so everything at the table was getting set to be a royal meal for them. And they don't know why. Because he's the intimidator. He didn't act like this before. And so the conscience is screaming inside them. There's something wrong with this picture. Verse 26, and Joseph came and they, and they brought into the house to him the present which was in their hand and bowed to the ground before him. Remember when everything started in Genesis chapter 37 with the dreams? There were two sets of dreams that God, God was in this. This is the second time Joseph's dream is fulfilled. When they met Joseph the first time, they bowed down, and we have the full fulfillment here the second time. They're bowing down before Joseph. And, and as Joseph is seeing this, I am sure he is reminded, as he was reminded the last time, that God was in this all. Look at verse 27. Then he asked them about their welfare. And he says, is your father well of whom you spoke? Is he still alive? And they said, your servant, our father, is well. He is still alive. And they bowed down in homage. And so when Joseph heard this, his emotions almost broke. He goes, Joseph in verse 30, hurried out, for he was deeply stirred over his brothers, and he sought a place to weep, and he entered his chamber, and he wept there. And so imagine you're sitting there, and he asks you, how's your father? He's fine. He's doing well. And he runs out, you know, and just, it was like, where'd he, where'd he go? Was it, was it something I said, you know? And then, and then, he, then he begins to come back. Joseph is so overflowing with emotions, he needed time to compose himself. Why was he so emotional? Well, his father was still alive because he still gets the opportunity, maybe, just maybe he can meet him again after 23 years. Or the other reason is, as one by one, the test that he was giving them, the beginning to get past is Benjamin alive? Yes. There he is. His evil brother didn't, didn't kill him off. Does Joseph trust his sons? Yes. Uh, Jacob sends him with them to get more grain. Does Benjamin trust his brothers? Yes. He goes, he goes along with them without complaining. Will someone return to, for Simeon? They all return for Simeon. And so... Things begin to, to get checked off on his list that somehow God was working within their hearts. But look at verse 32 for, for a moment. In, in verse 32, we get to see the serving of the meal. And when he washed his face and came out, he controlled himself, saying, serve the meal. So they served him by himself and by, by, them, by themselves. And the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves, because the Egyptians could not eat bread with the Hebrews, for it was loathsome to the Egyptians. Now, normally you, you might fly by this without thinking too much, but did you catch what was going on? Already within the hearts of the Egyptians had this disdain for the Hebrews. 
they, eat over, they wouldn't eat with them. They could eat over there. And if Joseph wants to eat with them, that's fine. And that's going to haunt the Hebrews for the next 400 years. But Moses sort of gives us an understanding of what is going on. Verse 33, and now they were seated before him. And there's a description as what Joseph wants them in a particular order. The firstborn according to his birthright and then the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked at one another in, ast- in astonishment. They go, all right, there's 11 of us here. All right? And what are the odds that this intimidator would get all 11 in the proper order? Because normally you, you would have them in, in an order, but these are grown men. Benjamin is the youngest. He's probably around 30, so you sort of know him. But these are grown men, and they're astonished. How did he do this? For us, that's not big of a deal, but for them, with their conscious screaming within them that things have not been right with God, the Holy Spirit is is beginning to show within them that God is at work with them, and they are astonished. Verse 34, he took portions to them from his own table. But Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs. So what's, what's going on here? Joseph gives them a minor test. There's going to be a final exam coming, but here's a, here's a minor test. Do Joseph's brothers despise the favoritism of Benjamin any longer? So they got a big spread. They're eating and drinking, and Benjamin gets five times as much, but not a word is peeped to complain. And so they took the portions and they feasted and drank freely with him. It was, they were set at ease of what was taking place. And so the one that had the most gray hair was probably at the front and then the younger, but Joseph was beginning to subtly to reveal to his brothers who he was. Because that would be the only way that makes sense. Because I don't know that much about statistics, but the odds of getting all 11 in the the right order, it would be pretty hard. And and so in in, uh, chapter 44, we we begin to see things accelerate. And so I will be accelerating. Um, in, In chapter 44, we have the last round of testing. Will they pass the final exam that Joseph gives them? And so all the tests are back into play. Will one emerge as the family leader? Look at verse 1. Then he commanded his house steward saying, fill the men's sack with food as much as they can carry and put each man money in the mouth of his sack. It's a sign of grace. Give them their their money back. Put my cup, though, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest, in Benjamin's, and his money for grain. And he did as Joseph had told. And so then they leave. They had just gone out of the city and were not far off when Joseph said to his house steward, Up! Follow the men, and when you overtake them, say to them, Why have you repaid evil for good? 
Is it not one from which my Lord drinks and indeed uses divination? Have you done wrong in doing this? And so Joseph puts whatever cup it is. I'm sure um, that Joseph's brothers knew that the gods of Egypt worship a myriad of gods. And so I'm sure there was one special goblet and that sort of stood out. It doesn't mean that Joseph used it for an occult, but they would have thought that he used it in occult worship. So it wasn't a lie. It was an exaggeration. And so he tells them to go. And so verse 6, so he overtook them and he spoke these words. And they said to him, why does my Lord speak such words as these? Why? So they hear the word, why have you repaid evil for good? Why do you say these things? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold, the money which we found in the mouth of our sack, we have brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal silver and gold from your Lord's house? With whomever your servants is found, let him die, and we also will be my Lord's slaves. And he said, Now let it be according to your words. He with whom it is found shall be my slave, and the rest of you shall be innocent. And they hurried, and each man lowered his sack to the ground, and each man opened his sack. He searched from beginning with the oldest and ending with the youngest. And so one sack down, two sack down, three, nine, ten. How about Benjamin? Benjamin didn't take it. Benjamin opens his up, and they find the cup. In verse 13, then they tore their clothes, and when each man loaded his donkey, they returned to the city. Despair filled their hearts. The intimidator places the cup in Benjamin's um, sack to make it look like he had taken it. And now how would his brothers react to that? Would they say, too bad, Benjamin. <laughs> we're, we're off again. But they mourn. They love Benjamin. God has done a work in their hearts. Their current reaction is different normally on how it would be. And so they're, they're, um, in verse 18, they're backstanding before Joseph. And now the man who intimidated them is standing there. And the leader of the group steps forward, not out of choice, but out of necessity. The old Judah steps forward. The old Judah is gone, but now somehow he is different in his explanation. Somehow the hound of heaven has gotten a hold of his prey and done a transformation in his heart to make his life different. We're not told when this transformation took place, but as we are about to see, we see the fruit. We see the result of him coming to a true faith. Look, look what we have in a few moments that we have left. We see this transformation. He pleads with, uh, with the intimidator. And Joseph approached him and said, My Lord, may your servant please speak a word 
in my Lord's ear. Do not be angry with your servant, for you are equal to Pharaoh. So he acknowledges his supreme position, and he, uh, and he asks to approach him. And it's interesting, from this point on, it's only Judah doing during the speaking. It's interesting because three times in, in this chapter we, we see Judah's name. Since Judah's name really from prior to, uh, to chapter 43, Judah's name is, is not mentioned at all. It's mentioned twice in chapter 43 and now three times. It is being used in emphasis. Judah is going to be stepping forward as leader of the brothers. So much so, look back at verse 14, because I had sort of skipped over this on purpose, but look what Moses tells us that he is already going to be the leader of the brothers. He said, when Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, why put Judah's name first? Because he is going to be preeminent he is going to be the speaker of the brothers. He is going to be the one that rises to the occasion. And so he pleads before Joseph. Look at verse 30. And this is the great part of the passage. This, this really makes the passage great. Now, therefore, when I come to your servant, my father, and the lad is not with us, since his life is bound up in the lad's life, and when he sees the lad is not with us, he will die. So he, he, he pleads the situation with his father Jacob, that if Benjamin isn't there, his life will just stop. Thus your servants will bring the gray hair of your servant, our father, down to Sheol in sorrow. For your servant, meaning him, became surety for the land, or a pledge. I became a pledge for Benjamin to my father, saying, if I do not bring him back to you, then let me bear the blame before my father forever. And now in verses 33 and 34, this is good. Now, therefore, please let your servant, meaning him, remain instead of the lad a slave to my Lord, and let the lad go up with his brothers. I want to take his place. Take me instead so my father doesn't die. For how shall I go up to my father if the lad is not with me for fear that I see the evil that would overtake my father? What, what a beautiful picture of the transformation that had taken place in Judah's heart. His offer shows that he loves Benjamin. There's been a heart change. This even echoes uh, Jesus' words found in John 15 and verse 13. Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for a friend. And so we see a transformation, but that doesn't Stop there. Look, look what he says. I pledge myself as guarantor for my father. I have made a pledge. And so he's fulfilling the pledge that he has made. So that he is prepared to give up everything to fulfill 
the promise that he has made to give up his freedom, to give up his family, to give up his possessions. Do you see the picture that is going on? He stands up on behalf of the son whom his father loved and offers himself as a substitute. That should sound familiar. That should sound, that is a picture of Judah being a type of the lion of the tribe of Judah, becoming a substitute for those whom the Father loves and having them go to the Father by paying the ultimate sacrifice of laying down his life on behalf of others. That's a picture of Christ in the cross. It's a type of, of what the Lion of Judah is going to accomplish on the cross and is being done here. And so we have a picture of the gospel. We see now that why Judah is going to get preeminence within the family because he's the next step of God's redemptive plan coming about. The life of, of Joseph is not a, a life of how to live a, a, a life of faith in a pagan culture and how you can succeed. It is God working providentially in the life of his people to bring out the plan of redemption, to save a people, to ultimately save the promised line going through Judah. And so it is a picture of God's redemptive purposes coming out, that he is willing to be a substitute. And so the hound of heaven is the only one who could work out that kind of transformation. This kind of transform, tra transformation and act that, he, that he's doing will bring about family unity from disunity, from peace within the family, from despair and bitterness in the family. And so Judah passes the test himself. And we see the fruit of this transformation. And so the rest of the story that is going to be taking place is not necessarily about, about Joseph working things out, but it is about the preeminence of Judah that, that is going to be taking place. And so we have him giving himself as a substitute, and it pushes Joseph to the edge because in verse 1 of chapter 45, Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He loses it for the last time. He just can't control himself. Why? Because God had finally, with at least one he could see, that he'd gotten hold of. And so he sees and the answer to the question of, do the sins of your past continue to characterize their present? And for Judah, it's a no. He's changed. He's not the same guy that slept around with Tamar. He's been changed. Have they learned to love the brethren? Yeah. He's committed to lay down his life. Do they, does, does any of them have integrity? 
They sure do. They bring back the money. Have those closest to them as seen a change? So much so that Jacob says it's okay to take Benjamin under the authority of Judah as his pledge. And so we see the life that is transformed by God when a person sees their sins and they turn and to believe in God and is reckoned to him as righteousness. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17, if there's anyone in Christ, he's a new creature. All things are passed away, and behold, all things become new. And so there is godliness finally in the family. There is righteousness. And so one rises to the occasion. And so it is through Joseph's life that we get to see God's providential workings because we see Judah rising to that occasion to fulfill. And so as the book of Genesis sort of begins to, uh, to wane, there are still a lot more gold nuggets going on. But as we leave this place and as we begin to come to the table, it begs the question, there are only two responses that we could have. Is one, if, if one's life has a life to where they think that they're walking with God, but there is no outward godliness, then they need to see their sin and see a holiness that only God can bring about because it, a holiness is found within him. If there is no assurance within that walk to where if they were to die tonight, where would they go if they're hoping that they would be with God? They have a faulty faith. But if one has believed in God and he has been declared righteous, not for the things that he has accomplished, but by what Christ has done on the cross, that he is now a new creature, and all those old stuff in which they had formerly done, they're all, uh, they're all gone. But they are there to make their life shine before the world so that they may see the good works and glorify the Father in, in heaven. And so we can rejoice in the fact that we can have that assurance and leave this place to know that God is using me to touch the lives of others around him to bring his name glory. And we can, just like with the baptisms, to tell the story, especially those who have been baptized again, because at one time they thought that they were saved, and then they realized, you know what, I really wasn't, because my life didn't match up. But now my life is one to where my current life is characterized by godliness, not what I used to do. My current life is one in which I have learned to love the brethren. My life is one to where it does have integrity. And those closest to me have seen a change because now their walk with God is true and it is right. That's why in, in the hymn, one of my favorite hymns, And Can It Be, I love this verse. It says, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thy nine diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flame with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. That's what happens when a person comes to faith that they are freed from the bondage of sin. Let's pray. Father, we thank you 
that we have had this opportunity to look at Judah and the change and the transformation that you have brought about. If there is anyone here who has not placed their faith within him, within Christ, that we have that great exchange where all my defilement was placed upon him and his righteousness was given over to me. If one does not have that, today is the day of salvation. Let the Holy Spirit scream in their heart so that they can see their sin, repent, and turn to Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.